Welcome, and thanks for checking out the Living Word Family Church Sermon Podcast. Before we get to the message, we'd like to invite you to check out Living Word Family Church if you don't already have a church home. For more information, you can check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. Good evening. Hey, those cookbooks, I don't know how many of you bought one. They're really nice. If you see them, they're really just, they're sharp looking, professionally done. I would encourage you, buy five or six, seven, ten of them. Keep them on hand for showers, for, for just presents, you know, uh, just, just uh, incidentals that come up. Here, be blessed with a cookbook. What? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Just be a blessing. There's some great, great recipes in there, too. Um, anyway, uh, I don't think... Uh, the, I originally thought this was going to be a pretty short message, and now I really hope it is. Uh, but uh, we'll see. I, I need to give you most of this message is going to be background because I have one point. This is a one-point sermon, one major point, uh, but it does require some background so that you'll see why we're making this point tonight. There has been, if you pay attention to this kind of thing, you know this, there's been for a long time some discussion and quite a bit of disagreement about whether the United States was founded as a Christian nation. And the short answer is, of course, it was. Certainly the first European settlers came to practice their Christianity more freely. You can see the writings of the early colonists. In fact, uh, John Winthrop, leader of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, one of the very earliest settlements around 1630, he wrote and preached a message called A Model of Christian Charity, and he wrote it and delivered this sermon either right before they set sail or on the journey. They weren't even here yet. And uh, it contains this uh, somewhat familiar passage. We shall find that the God of Israel is among us when ten of us shall be able to resist a thousand of our enemies, when he shall make us a praise and a glory that men shall say of, exce- of succeeding plantations, and plantations as in colony that is planted, not a plantation like we think of in the South, when he shall make us a praise and a glory, that men shall say of succeeding plantations, may the Lord make it like that of New England. For we must consider that we shall be as a city upon a hill. The eyes of all people are upon us, so that if we shall deal falsely with our God in this work we have undertaken and so cause him to withdraw his present help from us, we shall be made a story and a byword throughout the world. Talk about a sense of destiny, huh? But I'm actually talking about the founding of the United States of America. That wasn't their plan at that moment. I know some of the prominent men in the Continental Congress were deists, but most of them were Christians. We know this. And even the deists recognized the value of Christianity and the Bible as a basis for civil government. There was an amazing array uh, in the the early years uh, of America, American Christianity, for several years, for several decades, uh, of denominations and homegrown interpretations of the Bible. But by and large, this was a Bible-believing, orthodox nation. Christianity is in the very fiber of this country. That began um, 
and please understand, I know I'm painting in really broad strokes here. This is not an in-depth history lesson. I'm not really qualified for that. Uh, it's not my point. I'm just hitting some of the high points that are more or less common knowledge. But all that began to unravel when the so-called enlightenment of the early 1700s gave birth to what was called higher criticism, specifically Darwin's theory of evolution. The United States, even, even as people began to pick apart the Bible and dismiss the need for God uh, scientifically, the United States, even through all of that, remained a largely Christian nation all the way through World War II. And most of us acknowledge today that the wheels really started to come off when? In the 1960s. Many people throughout the years uh, point to the pivotal decision to remove prayer from public schools, the activities of famous atheists like Madeleine Murray O'Hare. And you've heard me talk about this before, probably. Uh, most of you have heard me talk about this, whether you remember it or not. But I am convinced that the seeds that produced the fruit of the 1960s were sown long before that. Let me interrupt myself long enough to say this. There have always been atheists. It's not like every person you know, on the North American continent in the early days of the United States was a Bible-believing Christian. There were always atheists. And even in the worst parts uh, of our history, there, have always, there has always been a remnant of committed Bible believers, true believers. And I'm speaking of America, even though it's true most of the world. But society as a whole sowed these seeds and what it was was this idea of keeping our religious lives separate from our public views, our public lives. Church was a Sunday thing. I remember reading a book years ago where there was one of the characters, there was a, some crazed lunatic murderer, and a person was describing and condemning this guy because what motivated him was his religious zealotry. He's a religious fanatic. And a reporter asked him, well, are you religious, sir? And he said, of course I'm religious, but I have the decency to keep it in church. This didn't happen overnight in the 60s, is what I'm saying. There were periods of common struggle in this nation's history, common celebration, and a spirit of good old American know-how. But what emerged over the years was American first. Everything else, including our religion, our beliefs, second. And we looked upon our superiority as the leader of the free world as obvious evidence of God's favor. And to an extent it was, has been. Now there's a theory, let me kind of go a different direction here for a second. There's a theory, and I'm not an economist, so I cannot, I don't know. I only offer this as an illustration. I'm not saying I believe this, but this was a widely reported theory in the uh, Clinton years. The Clinton years, you remember, uh, were notable uh, for among other things that we won't discuss tonight, they were notable for the, being the first time in many years we actually had a budget surplus. We suddenly had all this extra money to spend. Uh, and there were some who said Clinton got the credit for it, but what was really responsible was Reagan. Reaganomics, which went through the Bush years, trickled down, all this other stuff, but that it takes a while, that the American economic engine is like a train. It takes a long time to get stopped and then going the different direction. And so by the time Reagan's policies 
began to bear fruit, we were already in the Clinton years. Now, I don't know if that's true. But I do know that the wheels of history often turn slowly. And that uh, the values and ideas of a nation do build up momentum. Okay? They take a while to turn. Revolutions might seem to happen overnight, but there's always something, there's a slow buildup to a certain point. And we can't go forever on momentum. When, we, when we've got good ideas and good values, they will propel this nation and we the people for a long time. But something has to drive that train, stoke that engine. You know, there have been three so-called great awakenings in this nation's relatively short history. The first one took place in the late colonial days, and that was with the likes of uh, Wesley, uh, Whitfield, Edwards, Jonathan Edwards. And the second, you had uh, Beecher, uh, Peter Cartwright, and most famously, Finney. That was in the early 1800s. And the third, which wasn't as big a historical, it doesn't hold the same uh, uh, historical uh, prominence as the first two, but the third one in the late 1800s and early 1900s produced, among other things, the Pentecostal renewal, most famously exhibited at Azusa Street. It didn't start there, believe it or not, but that's where it most famously exploded. And all of these revivals, these awakenings, had effects that continue to ripple and echo today, don't they? But none of them ultimately are enough to stem the tide of secularism as we see it today. Today, what we're faced with is this entrenched view that our religious beliefs must become separate from our social and political activity, especially in the arena of policy and law. This is a free country. You can believe what you want, but you can't drag that stuff into the public uh, square because it's private. You're basically forcing your religion on somebody else. There's, there's a great song from Steve Taylor. I quote him from time to time because he's just such a brilliant lyricist. But he sang a song called Personal Thing. I don't know how many of you remember this. I don't even remember which album it was on, but I'm going to read you some of the lyrics here. And the lyric, it's an interesting song. I encourage you to look it up. It's fun to listen to because all the verses are a politician speaking. It's not sung. Only the chorus is sung, and I'm not going to sing it for you. But the, the, the politician in this song is saying this. It's a personal thing, and I find it odd you would question my believing in a personal God. I'm devout. I'm sincere. Ask my mother if you doubt it. I'm religious, but I'd rather not get radical about it. The old-time believers had timidity and grace. But this new generation doesn't know its place. You're entitled to believe, but the latest Gallup poll says you mustn't interfere. That's the government's role. It's a personal thing, and I boldly state that my views on morality will have to wait till my personal life's out of the public eye and the limitations statute can protect my alibi. I'm devout, I'm sincere, and I'm proud to say that it's had exactly no effect on who I am today. Here's my favorite line. I believe for the benefit of all mankind in the total separation of church and mind. It's a personal thing, and I plainly speak from the same code of ethics that I learned last week 
as I promised if elected this election day, with the help of God Almighty, I'll do it my way. And then the chorus says this, because when you throw your hat in the bull ring, before you know, no, no, it's a personal thing. And when it comes to the day of reckoning, he's going to tell them, uh-uh-uh, it's a personal thing. So my question is this, how did this happen? How did America move so far from the foundations of the word of God? How did America, the nation and government, become unhitched from America, the Christian nation? How did America become separated from the word of God? Because that's what I'm convinced of. It's what you're convinced of, right? That despite the tireless efforts of the church and of local churches, despite the remnant sometimes swelling, sometimes shrinking, America was bound and determined to divorce itself from the Bible. The Bible and all its wisdom have been lost in secular society. And this is what we lament. We look around at society and say, there is no respect, there is no knowledge of the word anymore. How did they become separated from what we, the church, hold so dear? I want you to turn to the book of Second Chronicles, chapter 34. This is in the dying days of the kingdom of Judah. I uh, don't have time to do a full review here, but you remember the kingdom after uh, Saul, David, and Solomon was split into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom of Israel had already fallen to Assyria decades before what we're about to read here. Babylon is on the rise, but not yet dominant. Judah had just endured the long reign of perhaps the worst king in their 300-plus year history and the short reign of his son Ammon. Uh, And we know most of this, the history. Israel was founded by God as God's people. And uh, almost from the very first, after the death of Joshua anyway, the people began to stray from the Lord. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. And God brought them to repentance. There were revivals. There were awakenings. Led by judges that God brought into their lives, and then later on kings, and often accompanied by prophets. But little by little, the land became more and more ungodly, more and more secular more and more like the world around them that had no God. And every now and then, a good king would rise up and lead the people back to God. And all this was done by paying renewed attention to the law, the law of God as given by Moses. They had a copy of it. You know, uh, back in Deuteronomy, before there was a king, Deuteronomy is very prophetic, and Moses wrote that when you have a king, the, 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 the law said that each king was supposed to have his own, make his own copy of the law. The book of the law was to be brought to him, and he was to hand copy his own Bible. So yeah, little by little, they lost it. The people of Israel, the secular society of Judah, lost the law. And then they wondered why God was no longer blessing them, no longer protecting them. But look at this. Second Chronicles 34, beginning in verse 1. Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord and walked in the ways of his father David. He did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left, for in, his eighth, for in the eighth year of his reign, so he's 16 years old, while he's still young, he began to seek the God of his father David. 
And in the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem, he's 20 now, of the high places, the wooden images, the carved images, the molded images. They broke down the altars of the Baals in his presence, and the incense altars which were above them he cut down, and the wooden images, the carved images, and the molded images he broke into pieces and made dust of them and scattered it on the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. He also burned the bones of the priests on their altars and cleansed Judah and Jerusalem. And he did, and so he did in the cities of Manasseh, Ephraim, and Simeon, as far as Naphtali and all around, with axes. And when he had broken down the altars and the wooden images, had beaten the carved images into powder, and cut down all the incense altars throughout all the land of Israel, he returned to Jerusalem. So he went on a crusade to cleanse the land, because at a young age he began to seek the God of his father, of his fathers. Verse 8, in the 18th year of his reign, he's now 26, when he had purged the land and the temple, he sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, and Mysiah, the governor of the city, and Joah, the son of Joahaz, the recorder, to repair the house of the Lord his God. So now he's cleansed the land of all this idol worship. Now they're going to fix up the temple. When they came to Hilkiah, the high priest, they delivered the money that was brought into the house of God, which the Levites who kept the doors had gathered from the hand of Manasseh and Ephraim, from all the remnant of Israel, from all Judah and Benjamin, which they had brought back to Jerusalem. Then they put it in the hand of the foreman who had, got, who had the oversight of the house of the Lord, and they gave it to the workmen who worked in the house of the Lord to repair and restore the house. There's a few more verses where we talk about what's going on here. Again, they're fixing up the temple, they're restoring it, and they've got to pay the laborers, pay the craftsmen. Skip to verse 14. Now, when they brought out the money that was brought into the house of the Lord, <clears throat> Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law of the Lord given by Moses. Then Hilkiah answered and said to Shaphan the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan. So Shaphan carried the book to the king, bringing the king word, saying, All that was committed to your servants they are doing. And they have gathered the money that was, in the house of, that was found in the house of the Lord, and they have delivered it into the hand of the overseers and the workmen. Then Shaphan the, Shaphan the scribe told the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. Thus it happened when the king heard the words of the law that he tore his clothes. Then the king commanded Hilkiah, Ahikam the son of Shaphan, Abdon the son of Micah, Shaphan the scribe, and Isaiah the servant of the king, saying, Go, inquire of the Lord for me and for those who are left in Israel and Judah concerning the words of the book that is found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is poured out on us, because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord to do according to all that is written in this book. I want you to see a couple things. We still have, still not to the point yet. Now, what happened after this? When the book of the law was read, Josiah immediately instituted reforms that were specific to the law, like keeping the Passover. Hadn't been done. So what was going on earlier? You know, when at age 16... He began to follow after the God of David. Well, the idea of God hadn't faded. This is, uh, it's, it's very hard to call this a Christian nation anymore. Nobody, oh, I say nobody, that's an absolute exaggeration, but we've talked about this before, used to be able to talk about Old Testament characters, famous ones. I'm not talking about obscure ones. I wouldn't expect 
an unbeliever to know who Josiah was. But back in the day, I would expect an unbeliever to know who Noah was and Moses, probably even Abraham. Today, you cannot count on that. But we still do live in a world where people know who God is. They know who Jesus is. They've heard of him. They have an image of him, all right? So that hadn't disappeared. Josiah had that. They'd been living under a terrible, terrible king with no regard for the law, right? No law. And, and the society had forgotten it. That's why he had to tour the land, cleansing of all these statues and idols and altars and, and false priests and everything. Now he's back, all right? And they go to fix up the temple. But he had this idea that, hey, I'm going to serve this God that we kind of know about, but nobody's following. I'm going to follow him. He just had his, this whatever, this general familiarity, and he also had Jeremiah the prophet, uh, kind of in his camp there, educating him. And, but he's the king. I want you to see that the early reforms he made, he was doing without the book of the law. He was following his heart. And because he was a king, he could follow his heart. Nobody could stop him. And he was a good king. His heart was right. But then they brought the book of the law to him, and he said, No! Even though he knew he had been moving the right direction, he's looking at where we've been as a country for the past 42 years before I took the throne. And God has specifically pronounced a curse on us. We're doing those things. Great is the wrath of God. What are we supposed to do? And so what's he do? He institutes these reforms. And what the upshot of it was that he didn't spare, ultimately spare Judah, the judgment, but it was delayed. For the length of his reign. So he saved him for a few years. Now, here's the point. Remember I said at the beginning, everything up to this point has been the introduction. The point is this, the book of the law was not lost in the secular world of the citizens of Judah. It was lost in the house of the Lord. Churches today, once again, broad brush. There are some great churches today. Thank God for them, and I thank God Living Word Family Church is one of them. But you can go, I, I read a statement of faith from a church on Sunday, and I do not think that, 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 that that's an outlier. I think that's a very common expression. And the thing, most of you were probably here, the thing that alarmed me about it was not so much the things that were for, but the things that they didn't mention. No mention of the cross of Christ. No mention of the lostness of man and his need for God. No mention of sin. No mention of redemption. No mention of the resurrection. But churches today are busy. They're multitasking. They're involved in social justice, reconciling man to man, and there's nothing wrong with those things per se, but if they are done without regard to the core of the gospel, what we are going to wind up with is a society that might be impressed by a church or even the church from time to time, but will be far from God and ignorant of his word. If we are not preaching, again, the cross of Christ, the uniqueness of Christ, the lostness of man, and the authority of the Bible. We cannot simply look at the Bible, and we don't. I do not, do not think this church is in danger of doing that. But there are churches by the score out there that are simply looking at the Bible as this is one way to enrich our understanding of the man Jesus Christ. And nothing more. 
This is why preaching the word of God is central to Living Word Family Church. This model, by the way, of the sermon being kind of the centerpiece of the service goes back to the days of the synagogue in Jesus' day. That's what they did. They would read the scripture and teach the scripture. Praise and worship, really in one sense, is the most important thing that we do on Sunday mornings. We did a series on praise and worship several months ago, and I think we got that message that there's no higher calling, there's nothing more uh, uh, specific that speaks to what we were created to do than those moments we spend praising our Heavenly Father. It's what we were created for. But without the Word of God providing a center of gravity, our praise and worship will be empty. To say nothing of our politics and our public witness. Um, Praise and worship team, you can come up here, whoever's in here. We have to, and again, this is a church that was founded on the word of God, and I look back at the the early days of the church, and it's like, well, what did we do? What was it that caused us to grow so fast? Why aren't we seeing that growth now? I don't know why we're not seeing that growth now. I can tell you what caused it to grow so fast, and it wasn't brilliant outreach schemes. It certainly wasn't the building. We were meeting in that old gym over there in Ogden. You know what it was for most people? It was a hunger for the truth of the whole of the full gospel. I was raised in a church and I'm not I thank God for certain aspects of it. I'll be honest, when it comes to Bible knowledge, the things that I knew about God, I'm quite certain I learned more in Sunday school and from my mom than I did in any than 12 years of sermons in that church. The word of God simply wasn't central to what some churches call the homily or the sermon. Every now and then, and there would be a scripture reading, but often the scripture reading was just like, okay, we did that, now we'll talk about it. And the scripture had nothing to do with what the sermon was about. This is not unusual. Many of you came, probably came from churches like that. I've, I've been to, recently to a funeral in a church where the homily was delivered by a pastor. And there was no mention of eternity. You were there. No mention of eternity. No mention of the cross. No mention of life, death, God, nothing. Now, I've told you before. In fact, when I've preached uh, funeral sermons, I've, I've shared this story, how I have been at a funeral that was not, not in a church. It was This was a... An unbeliever died, and a bunch of unbelievers were honoring him. This is a friend of mine from way back. And it was well attended, but it was depressing. But I kind of knew what to expect. When I go to a church funeral, when I know the deceased had a relationship with Jesus Christ, I expect to hear something about that. And I did not from the minister. This is where we are. This is not unusual.
we have to have that center of the knowledge of the Word of God. And when we, again, I look back on that, when coming out of that background and then moving very, what seemed like very suddenly into a new awareness, wow, I've been raised to believe the Bible. The big difference between those days and then what we stepped into was, now I know what it says. I had that foundation of, yeah, I believe the Bible, it's true. Nobody had opened my eyes to the wonderful things that were in the Bible. The things that says I can have, the things that says I can do, the things that says I was made for. Things that have been provided for me and purchased for me by the finished work of Jesus Christ. We are only going to get that from the word of God. So, as we fast, you can stand with me. I hope you're participating in the fast. It's been a few days now. I hope you're starting to feel it. I hope my stomach growling didn't drown out my preaching tonight. But let those hunger pangs, those occasional desires, remind you again that we need to be feeding, feasting on the Word of God. And there are a couple of very straightforward things you can do to help make this happen. First and foremost, pray. How many of you have ever prayed? Maybe in desperation, maybe in faith. How many of you have ever prayed? Damn, finish the question. I've prayed, I've prayed. How many of you have ever prayed for God to deliver you from a bad habit, to take away an evil, sinful desire? Just, God, this would be so easy if you would just take this, the desire to do evil away from me. And I've heard of it happening. Doesn't seem to happen very often. How about we simply pray, hey, God, I want to have the habit of Bible reading. Would you drop that desire in me? Is it going to hurt anything to ask? Does he want us to read the word? Is he pleased when we hunger for the word? So is it God's will that I hunger for the word? Pretty, that's clear from scripture, right? If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, we know that we have the things that we ask of him. 1 John 5, 14 and 15. Have him, ask him to grant you a desire and a hunger for his word. Here's the other thing we can do. Whether you are experiencing that hunger, do it. Do it as a matter of discipline. Do it as a matter of faith. I promise you it will not take long. It's just like exercise. I was talking to uh, uh, somebody right before church about how I've kind of gotten out of the habit of exercise. And it's hard to start. It's hard for a number of reasons. You know, it's like, well, you know, it's just one step. You might not see the results for a while. You know, you're going to be sore if you take it really seriously. I just got to get back. Talk about baby steps. I used to ride my bike to work several times a week. I don't live far from here, but it helped. I'd make at least two trips a day. I used to walk the dog twice a day. Not only now am I fat, but my dog's fat. So just got to make little changes. But as many of you who have embarked upon an exercise regimen and stuck with it, what have you discovered? You actually get to the point where you miss it if you don't do it, right? We can do that with Bible reading too. So, real quickly, right before we close, if there's anybody in here, this is an exciting, exciting time. Not just because it's 2020, not even because it's a new year period. But just because we are, again, one day closer to the return of Jesus Christ, there's some horrible things happening in the world, but God is still good and God is still God. I just want to be at the center of his will, find ourselves doing as individuals, as families, and as a church exactly what he wants us to do. It starts with a personal thing. It's a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. If you don't have that, and I think everybody in here does, don't want to take it for granted and I always want to give this altar call so that you're hearing it and you learn how to give it if you don't have a personal relationship with the God we're talking about then you really according to the Bible 
can't understand his word. It's a spiritual book. There's some things you can understand. God will reveal himself even to the unbeliever if they apply themselves to the Bible. But the Bible really does come alive when the author lives inside you. That's the kind of personal relationship God wants you to have. It's only available through the finished work of Jesus Christ. So if you've never made Jesus Christ your Lord, your Savior, I invite you to do that tonight. If you'll confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Tonight's your opportunity. I'm going to pray a prayer for us as a church. And then when I'm done praying that prayer, if you desire to give your heart to Christ, if you desire to recommit your life to Christ, the altars are open. If, you, if it's a first-time salvation, you want to make that decision. Make him your Lord. Come directly to me and let me pray with you. Heavenly. Thanks for listening. We hope that this message encouraged and equipped you in your walk with Christ. Make sure to follow us on Facebook or Instagram to stay updated with what's going on at Living Word Family Church. Have a great day.